Hello, and welcome to Found, the TechCrunch podcast that brings you the stories behind the startups from the folks that are building them. I'm your host, Becca Skutak, and I'm joined, as always, by the lovely Dominic Midori Davis. Hey, Dom, how's it going? I'm, you know, in the year, hanging in there. What about you? Definitely in the hanging in there group, but still fun enough fun stuff, I feel like, at the end of this year to keep us going. Yeah, definitely. Holiday party season. Oh, we love a holiday party. <laughs> We also love the guests we had on today. Today, we have James Wagoner from Jewelcase, which specializes in power solutions for mobile businesses like food trucks, street vendors, and even outdoor concerts and festivals. We really enjoyed getting to talk to James about how him and his co-founder built Jewelcase so that it could have the largest environmental impact and why regulation in a few states is likely to really help their business grow. Now, we're trying something different this week. Two truths and a lie. We're going to say two truths and a lie that comes up in the conversation. And in the outro, we'll share which one was the lie. Does that make sense? Okay. So what are the two truths and a lie for this conversation, Becca? All right, guys, you got to really listen in close. The two truths and a lie for this week are diesel generator emissions are regulated the same way cars are. Number two, jewel case manufactures their batteries in Idaho. And number three, Jewelcase has over 2,000 investors. You'll have to listen to the conversation to find out. And speaking of, let's get into it. Hey, James, how's it going? Doing well. How are you? Doing well. Where are you located in the world? I'm in Seattle. Oh, is it raining? (laughs) No. In fact, it's uh, kind of frosty. Clear skies, uh, the windows of the car were all frosted over this morning. So that's uh, pretty rare. Amazing. But thanks so much for coming on the show today. Probably the best way to get started here is why don't you tell us a little bit about your company? Tell us about Jewelcase. Yeah. So Jewelcase was founded by Alex Livingston and I in R&D research mode in 2015. This is our second battery startup together. So we are very passionate about kind of the application or end use of new battery technologies or what this transition to clean power really means. So uh, Jewel Case, a simple tagline is just power where you need it. And we're on a quest to eliminate 1 billion pounds of CO2 emissions by 2028. And this is with our developed patented modular energy system that is a clean, no fumes, reliable, quieter to diesel generators. Something that's interesting to me is I feel like we've been hearing about this transition to electric power and a sort of cleaner energy for a while now. But where you guys are focused with generators is something that just hasn't really been as big of a part of the conversation, it seems like. How did you guys decide to focus on this problem or sort of like why this area? Yeah, it's been a journey for us for a while, right? And then so we started R2EV together in 2007. The concept there was a modular battery blade for electric vehicles. So this solved two problems, right? First, the charging, how long it would take to charge systems. But it also solved you know, a problem that was a big concern back then, which was the cost of a battery system and the concern of how long that was going to last you. I think since then, we've we've certainly figured that all out and these batteries are lasting a lot longer than, than we initially anticipated. But that charging is still an issue. So that whole concept allowed us then to build our first electric vehicles with our battery blade system. We actually got a contract with Spain for 12,000 taxis using this modular technology that we developed. And then, you know, the Great Recession hit and really everything clean tech 
took a backstep to the austerity measures, the financial crisis that really hit the world. In 2015, as we really imagined this future of electrification, you could see a lot of things progressing. You could see a lot of focus in some areas. And we know this, uh, transportation, solar, all of that, that's great. But you know, we really saw a missing hole in that portable power space. And so we started off with trade shows, expos that have kind of miscellaneous power throughout it. So maybe it's that couch that needs to be charging, your, your booth that needs an extension cord. And then we really powered up from there. And really the focus throughout all of this is there can be a platform that solves for all of these energy needs. And uh, that's what Jewel Case was able to develop from the very beginning. So, you know, I guess that's just that passion that we've had about that acceleration of the electrification is something that we've always brought to every one of these applications. So right now you're working to kind of replace diesel, right? So what's happening in the diesel space for people who might not know, which I'm sure we all know that climate change is wrecking us right now. But can you just talk a little bit about like what is common right now and why that is bad? Yeah. So there's a lot of power applications that you just don't realize that are portable or temporary. We've always solved that with diesel generators or gas generators, whatever that might be, right? But combustion generators and these things are you know, loud diesel engines, they typically don't have the catalytic converters, the emission controls that your car does. And they're kind of spewing those diesel fumes right next to that event that might be, you know, a county fair, music festival, a race course, you know, whatever it might be. But that's how we've always solved for these power systems. And I think after this session, you're going to start to realize how many diesel generators are actually out there. So uh, landscaping, any event that you might go to, any food truck, when there's that park set up, all of these are using diesel generators because we're now relying more and more on technology that requires power. And that goes to diesel generators. So there's now a, you know, there's no longer an acceptance to have a loud polluting diesel generator. There's health effects going on. And so you're starting to see an increased awareness in the effect that these are having and starting to ban these uh, diesel generators. So states like California and Connecticut have started to induce legislation around banning these generators. And then even New York City just introduced legislation that would ban diesel generators for ice cream trucks because of the effects of uh, children at those ice cream trucks as well. That's like really terrifying. Oh, that's so oh interesting. My <laughs> Do people who have these food trucks, I'm thinking of like just the ice cream man, does he know that diesel generator is like really, really bad? Or is that something that I guess a lot of people who have these food trucks, they might not know? They know. But the problem is, is that they just don't have an alternative to uh, these diesel generators. There really has not been anything else. You know, whether it's the ice cream truck or another one in that area, the street vendors in New York City. And there's that exposure for that child that comes into your truck or whatever it is. And that might be, you know, 10 minutes or so, five minutes. But what about that employee that's there for 10, 12 hours a day that is also breathing those fumes in? And, you know, like I said, it doesn't have the catalytic converters, the pollution controls. So it's about 42% more harmful emissions than your car has. So imagine if the three of us were having this conversation at the tailpipe of my car or your car, you know, we would immediately move. But these employees, these customers, you know, can't move and it can be hours at a time. And so there's a lot of desire to make this better, to make it cleaner and, and nicer. But there hasn't been a solution for them until now. And I'm curious because what tied into what I mentioned earlier, where it seems like generators just like weren't part of this cleaner energy transition or wasn't as big of a conversation topic, even though, as you mentioned, of course, they fuel so many things, things that operate every day, as well as you mentioned the festivals and these big events that come and go. 
How hard is it to create these batteries? Or maybe if you want to talk about sort of like what it was like building Jewel Case into what it is today and maybe why people weren't trying to tackle this before. So diesel generators and batteries are very different, obviously, right? But I think that a lot of people are trying to equate kind of an apples to oranges type thing. A diesel generator, you know, the expense, the capital goes into the pistons, the cylinders, you know, that engine that produces the power. So you get that peak power, right? You know, think of your car, it's 200 horsepower. So that's the expensive part, but the energy is very cheap, that storage, it's a tank, right? And then you fill that tank with energy, which is the diesel, but the storage unit of energy, which is just a metal tank is very cheap. Batteries are different. Batteries, the storage of the energy, that battery is the most expensive part. The power side of it, the inverter is actually really, really cheap. So the difference is, is that diesel generators, everyone has overbuilt these diesel generators because they're cheap. No one has any understanding or awareness of this. You know, one story I like to share is I was at a music festival monitoring all of this power. There was, um, you know, a weird burp or noise in the generator. So they were concerned. So they suddenly bumped up the diesel generator. But if you'd looked at the actual load profile, they were only using 20% of the available power in that diesel generator. So there's some weird noise. No one did the analysis of actually understanding how much power is needed. And they suddenly increased the diesel generator. So now they're actually emitting more CO2 emissions than they were before because no one's really looking at that, mm-hmm. right? And then so each situation of a power system is very unique and different. If you suddenly add a new light or a new sound system or a new refrigerator, that power suddenly changes dramatically. So the past solution is no one's been looking at diesel generators because they are cheap. They oversize them tremendously so that if someone puts something in there as well, it's fine. So what Jewelcase has done is create the database of all of these different applications, you know, a vent hood fan, a construction light, whatever it might be, so that you understand what that energy profile looks like throughout the duration. And then you can ideally size a portable power system to that application. So when you do all of this at scale, which we're doing with our sales teams now, you can ideally size this to each application, Mm. meaning that now we can become cost competitive with the diesel generator. If you don't ideally size this and understand that load profile and you try to approach this the same way that a diesel generator would, you're going to be vastly more expensive on a battery system compared to a diesel, and then you ultimately lose the customer. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that in terms of how much does it cost to move from diesel to your product? Like how much would it cost overall, I guess, for like the ice cream truck man? Yeah, the trick to this is to really understand the low profile and to ideally size that battery, right? And so if you're trying to come with a one size solution, you know, you, hey, I got my one fixed battery, then a lot of times you're going to be a lot more expensive. You're going to be three to four times more. But when you ideally size, what we've seen in the hundreds of customers we've spoken to is that typically we're about 20 to 30% more expensive up front, but then you save all of that diesel fuel. And then so our customers have an ROI of 10 to 14 months compared to buying that diesel generator. It's not just a nice feel-good story. These customers are buying jewel case because of this hard realized ROI. 
And switching gears just a little bit, I'm definitely curious since your first answer of what got you interested in this space. So you guys were sort of on the verge of having this great success story with your first startup in the clean energy space. And then, of course, that didn't happen due to factors outside of your control. What has it been like building in the clean tech space again? I know investor sentiment and just like public perception about the space. Obviously, we talk about the clean tech bubble burst, but now there's all this renewed interest and people seem excited about it again. But are you building with like a chip on your shoulder? Like I have to know because that's so such a rare occurrence that a startup doesn't succeed because of totally out of its control factors. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that both Alex and I are convinced that that this is inevitable. This is going to happen. The timing, the things that come around, you know, and, and we certainly thought that we'd be further along in terms of society than we are right now. But what's mm-hmm. really exciting now is that the government mandates, the ESG goals from corporations, we are seeing more and more of an acceleration. And, you know, really, we can't keep up with the amount of mandates that are coming out. So it's super exciting. But I think all of this, Becca, was driven by the passion that Alex and I had of doing something and uh, realizing that we had an expertise here, realizing, you know, this was not being looked at and that we could do something about it. You know, we've just always been focused on kind of realizing this vision that it's just been very exciting to see the traction develop over the years. So there was some kind of focus or some, I guess, scrappiness there for a while, but it's just really exciting to see this vision come to life now. And now we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back in a second. I need to know, I'm trying to get to the WeFunder because I definitely want to know about crowdfunding this, but also why you didn't go to investors. Because, I mean, this is like a really big industry and there is like massive interest in it. So why the crowdfunding? Yeah, We've now raised a little over $6 million in total. And this is from angel investors and then also from crowdfunding as well. But crowdfunding was very successful for us. It's a big part of our story and and how we've been successful. What happened was that we talked to friends, neighbors, colleagues, and in the conversation, they would get really excited and be like, oh man, I really, you know, how can I invest? I'd love to like come alongside you invest. And, uh, you know, a lot of them are not accredited investors. They'd want to write a smaller check size, that kind of stuff. That was always in the back of my mind. But then, you know, I think also this effect that's going to affect everyone's daily lives in terms of your energy usage and fundamental to life and how we go about everything is energy. You heating your home, lighting your houses, this podcast, everything is is based on energy. And, and we really disregarded or not really accounted for how that energy is brought into our life. And so that's going to vastly change here for all of us. Why don't we also enable these people that are going to be affected to actually participate in the financial upside for this as well. So there was a lot of excitement from these investors, but then also a desire to bring them on board to get excited about this transition, not make it fearful where it's like, well, I don't know anything about batteries and solar. You know, I know how to change the oil in my car, but what happens now? Now they can get excited and join our story. So we're able to really tell that story in a way that got over 2,000 investors on board. And actually, they've done a lot of really great work for us. You know, uh, we call them our power pack investor community. Obviously, they're financially incentivized because they are investors, but now they're telling their communities, their advocates for this electrification journey that we're going on. And they can talk to uh, their neighbor about what this future electrification is and what Jewel Case is doing to accelerate that. And just one question off of that, because 
talking, as you mentioned, with like friends and neighbors, are you guys focused on selling to both consumer and businesses? Say if I like to do landscaping, this is such a far reach, I hate doing yard work, but say I like to do landscaping or something and I want to buy something like this, like, is that maybe why some people are getting interested as well? Because they could actually go out and buy this themselves personally also. You know, we have a lot of different technologies. We have now 13 patents granted in kind of that application end use space. We've transitioned away from the consumer side of things. Mm -hmm. The B2B impact is so large and that customer is so real that we a little bit transition away from that. But I think what it does enable these consumers is to have that experience of, of that business that is diesel generator free. It allows them to see how that impact can reduce some of these emissions and their noise. So I think at some point, Becca, we, you know, we might get back into the consumer space, but this B2B space is so overwhelming that we have our hands full already. Sticking with the crowdfunding side for just a second, because I don't know if we've had, or at least since I've been on this podcast, if we've had a founder who's done that route yet. So I wanted to ask you, because I know VCs love to say that they help companies beyond the capital. They have all of this expertise, these networks, this value add that kind of goes beyond the actual check that they're writing. And because you guys took the crowdfunding route, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about where you guys are going for, say, that expertise or that guidance or more of those advisory type of services if you aren't necessarily going to get that from the investing pool? Yeah. Yeah. Great question, Becca. You know, ever since Jewelcase started, I've really been deliberate of cultivating an advisor mentor network. Here in Seattle, you know, I go down to San Francisco quite a bit as well. There's a lot of uh, mentors, advisors that, you know, have really helped Jewelcase along the way. You know, our board is filled with clean tech experts that know this space that have been able to advise us along the way, corporate governance, all of that, right? You know, I don't think that, you know, a VC on the board that might be, you know, once a quarter type call is really where you're going to get most of your advice anyways. They certainly could do some introductions for you, but our introductions from our crowd have been the best that we really could get, right? And so a couple examples here. I mean, it's you have thousands of people telling their local businesses, and we're getting all of these referrals coming into Jewelcase for businesses. But it's not just that. One of our investors was a senior executive at uh, United Rentals mm. previously. And then when he saw our system, he invested right away. And then he was able to get us introduced to the core senior leadership at United Rentals. And then we quickly, you know, after like a patent review summary from their lawyers, we were able to meet with the board of directors at United Rentals to kind of explain our technology and how it's different. And, you know, quickly get into United Rentals, where I'm actually now excited to share that uh, we actually just delivered our first system to United Rentals. And if you kind of think of that company, the largest rental company in North America, also one of the largest diesel generator fleets in the world, however the size it might be. So they're obviously getting a lot of ESG pressures and mandates to get away from diesel generators. And they've been working on it. They've got a lot of expertise in that. But you know that expertise is great because then they can see what we're doing and recognize the value that our technology brings. And that's why they're excited to work with us. And sticking on sort of this United Rentals piece for a second, 
since we talked a little bit about how you've mentioned that you have to attack this problem, making these jewel cases available at different sizes because different customers need different things. A food truck doesn't need what a music festival needs, et cetera. What has it been like making a sales strategy then? Because while in theory you're selling the same product, just in a different size or a different capability, you're selling to very different customers. Some are temporary users, some are everyday users. What is it like creating this sales strategy when you are trying to reach such different customers? Yeah, great question. Really, the premise of everything here is that we can power what you need, right? You power where you need it. And that really has resonated with customers where they're coming to us with their inbound problems. And then what we've done is then we create this full database that allows us to plug and play and say, listen, this is exactly the amount of energy of power that you need for your application based on, you know, you need eight hours, 10 hours, whatever it might be. There's a hand on sales approach with our sales team, but all of this is inbound inquiries, whether it is a landscaping company, a music festival company, a food truck, a rental site. There's a lot of curiosity and desire to move away from diesel generators, and they don't necessarily know where to go. So then they reach out to us with our digital ad marketing campaign, our thought leadership that we're doing, and they say, hey, can you guys do something? And a lot of times they're turned away and said, no, we can't do that one. That one's just a little bit off base because, again, each one of these is so unique. When they come to Jewel Case, the answer is simply yes, we can certainly do this. I'm really proud of our sales team and being able to build up these systems and processes. I'm proud of the sales teams in, in handling all these different conversations that we're having where you know they can quickly give a solution to the customer and, and the customer buys off on it. And that's allowed us to have 5x sales growth where we're going to be on pace to doing $5 million this year. And because you mentioned it, I am curious, what is the competition like in this area? You know, most of the customers are coming to us are comparing us to diesel generators. Really, that's kind of the question is they say, okay, well, we're looking at diesel generators. Let's look at this. So power needs analysis that we develop and and we have hundreds of them. Uh, Most of the time, it's a diesel generator. But then there are some kind of fixed systems that work for very specific needs, right? So on the consumer side, you have some very well-funded companies like EcoFlow or Blue Eddy that can power that campsite, that tailgate. And then on the larger side, some companies that have raised a lot of money, like Elmoxion, which has got a big battery trailer. You know, it's kind of a big trailer that just shows up. So um, kind of in the middle and being able to ideally size this and kind of span the whole spectrum of these systems is Jewel Case. So we go from small to large. There's really no one that's doing this kind of modular approach on a B2B application the way that we're doing. And so I'm also really interested. So why do you manufacture the batteries in Idaho? Is there something about Idaho (laughs) that (laughs) why Idaho? You know, that's not really like on on purpose or deliberate. That's just where Alex and I are from, Uh right? So we met at University of Idaho freshman year of uh, college in mechanical engineering class. And then when we got started and being able to raise what we've done and gone as far as we have, we've been very cash efficient. So we've kind of built and delivered out of a storage unit in Boise, Idaho. There was parents' garage, and then we rented a small detached home with a garage as well. So we've really done a lot of building there in Idaho. That's so fun. That is fun. I was sitting here thinking that Idaho had like special, there was something in, I don't know, the ground or the air that... Something we didn't know. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, what's over in Idaho? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I guess that's also a good way to pivot to talking about your personal journey as a founder and an entrepreneur. And so you had a company before this. What is one, I guess, failure that you had at that company that taught you something for when you started this company? Yeah, great question. So the biggest takeaway I've had from R2EV in that whole process was 
being able to get immediate feedback from the customer in terms of a purchase. There's a lot of people that would love to you know, talk to you, learn from you. There's a lot of startups that get excited about some sort of, you know, well, look, I'm talking to such and such company and they seem excited, right? And, and that's a good signal, but you only have a business once there's a purchase that's made. So yes, there was these Fiat Pandas and the 12,000 taxis and, and it was going to launch and be exciting. But you know, in launching Jewel Case, you know, I really wanted to make sure that, that if we're going to be doing this again, we could build and we could immediately sell concepts and see if the customer would buy off on it. Jewel Case from day one has been very customer focused. We're not finance focused. We're not trying to get the right investors, but instead saying, you know, if Mr. Customer, you know, from day one, always talking to the customer and then from there being able to get that buying signal. And at that point, you actually have a business. And it's not a startup, it's a business now. So just being able to say, well, all right, put your money where your mouth is. And we have. We've been very fortunate to be able to kind of grow and scale Jewel Case in a way that that has been on the backs of our customers a lot of the ways. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point because I know you probably have seen it too, but like watching what's happening in the broader sort of startup ecosystem right now is that a lot of companies who are able to raise funding are finding out they don't have product market fit. And it's nice to kind of hear you're like, well, we just wanted to make sure we had product market fit before anything else, which seems so obvious when you say it like that, but it's so not typical in this space for some reason. Yeah, exactly. I agree, Becca. And the 2021 and and how the funding all happened for everyone, right? Like that obviously is on the top of everyone's mind right now. But it's important from my perspective is that you have a company if you actually have like that business like growth. You know, it's nice to be able to raise funds or, you know, announce a Series A, whatever that might be. But at the end of the day, that doesn't mean anything other than you got a group of VCs get excited, right? That's all it really means. But it doesn't mean you actually have a business. So that's not what our focus has been. And thinking more about the journey to starting this company too, you mentioned you met in class. So you met him your freshman year of college, and this is your second business together. What was it like transitioning from friends to founders together? And sort of why do you think it's been so successful with the two of you as a pair thus far? Yeah. You know, when I kind of look at relationships and all the relationships in my life, the relationship I have with Alex, my co-founder, especially over two different startups, is by far the kind of the most intense relationship in my life, right? The highs and the lows, how well you know that person and all of that. So, uh, you know, we were very fortunate to met where we did and fortunate to find this fit. But you know, I think founders generally, there's kind of this mix that you need where one can be that visionary, that ideator that wants to go somewhere. And then there's an implementer. I think that's kind of a really good combination. And there's a little bit of mix on that where it's not just as clean or simple as that, but just generally, of course. Alex is kind of the visionary, the imagination behind everything that we do. He's constantly imagining and pushing the boundaries of how we can deliver larger, more modular, more simple battery systems to customers. And I, on the other hand, am am much more kind of the implementer. And then so that partnership has worked through the years. And for me, it's, it's allowed me then to lean on him in terms of, okay, well, I'm ready to make this plunge. And he's already made the plunge, right? He's already going a million miles an hour and say, no, this is where we're going to go with Jewel Case. So it's a good relationship with the two of us. Yeah, I was I was going to ask, like, how did you know who was going to be CEO? Was there drama or did you already know, like, I'm CEO and then you do, you know, that? Yeah. So it's kind of ebbed and flowed through the different, you know, so R2EV, he was the CEO and mm-hmm. I was the CTO at the time and building all this all out. But also it's so blurred. While my title was CTO, it was really... 
you know, he was doing a lot of the technology himself as well. So with Jewelcase, there was a time where talking with angel investors more and more became my focus and being able to implement all of this. And then building the technology and imagining the concepts became more of his realm. And I just found that I you know, had that niche or that ability to talk to angel investors or to raise that round or to build the teams. So it was just, okay, well, I will, I'll take over the CEO duties, but kind of the spirit or the vision of Jewel Cases is always Alex. And really leaning on him on how we can continue to maintain our thought leader position in this affordable electrification space. I know we're running out of time, but I did want to ask you about your leadership and also company culture. And so I guess to start there, how big is your company now? How many employees do you have? So we now have 25 full-time employees. And how would you describe your leadership style and managing everything? Yeah, I, it's hiring the best that we can get, right? And, and I think hiring and making sure that every hire raises the bar for the culture. So for example, being able to hire Apple's head of battery to be our CTO. And suddenly everyone's taking notice and saying, okay, listen, we now are elevating our technology or product in a way that makes it simple and easy the way that Apple does. And then if you've hired the best and you got to make sure they're passionate, then you know I want to get out of their way and let them excel. And so I want to make sure they have the tools. I want to set the direction of where we're going as a company and the strategic goals for the year, and then let this amazing team continue to win and succeed. Thinking about where you guys are now in the journey and where you guys are looking ahead, where would you peg yourself as far as development goes? Obviously, of course, you guys have customers, you're selling the product. Where are you guys in this growth journey and sort of where do you head from here? Yeah, so we have a product market fit, right? We have a very diverse, robust customer base from small to medium to enterprise businesses. And so we're scaling right now, right? We're on a pace to do 5x growth at 5 million this year, looking to do 12 to $15 million next year in 2024. So really just scaling and growing as fast as we can and deliver these customers. Perfect. And right now you're just in the U.S., right? Yeah, correct. You know, we've delivered to Canada, that kind of stuff, but focusing on the U.S. I was going to ask if there's a European expansion soon. There's a lot of music festivals out there. (laughs) There are. Yes, there is. And there, you know, it's not just music festivals, of course, right? It's the construction, it's the whatever it might be, but they're a little bit advanced, more advanced than we are in terms of our understanding. For example, we uh, actually just partnered with Netflix and Disney as they want to eliminate diesel generators for film production. They know they need to do something. And now, you know, we're going to start removing diesel generators for Netflix and Disney as well. Oh, that's really interesting. Now I have to ask about that. Is there diesel generators in the parks? Is that also a market like in the theme parks? Yeah, it. So they will certainly have a fleet of diesel generators for maybe that like, you know, it's not just in, like the ride that will actually have be tied to the grid. But let's say they have like, you know, that theater or some sort of like music festival going on that will be powered by a diesel generator. Oh, wow. And I would say probably one last question. What drives you in this space? You've been building in the same area for a long time. Your second company, you've had some ups and downs, of course. What drives you to keep going? So I am fundamentally a technologist, you know, understanding that technology can solve problems. And the biggest problem that I see right now is global warming. So that drive to reduce these CO2 emissions and curb global warming is something that, you know, is bigger than bigger than me, bigger than all of us. And we have a technology that can have an impact with that. So, you know, every day waking up and seeing that drive is something that keeps me motivated. Well, cool. Well, I think we're pretty much just at time. So thanks so much for coming on the show today. This has been really fun. Yeah, thank you guys.
And that was our conversation with James. Dom, are you ready to tell our listeners what the lie was? Yes. Okay. So two truths and a lie. What was the lie, everyone? All right. That there was meaningful regulation on diesel generator emissions. Uh, apparently there's not. <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo. The saddest one ended up being the one that was wrong. <laughs> We hate to see it. We hate to see it. Um, But, you know, I did not realize that or I guess I never thought about it. Like, I never thought when you see these food trucks that they're just breathing in all of that harmful air that seems insane and also just disgusting and also really, really scary. I need to see like the medical bills associated with this now because I can only imagine the long term effects of of doing because like food trucks have been such like a big thing. And there have been so many reports about like, oh, my gosh, food trucks, everyone start this, everyone do this. But I haven't heard much about how harmful they can be, I guess, to overall health. No, for sure. It's crazy because I think we talked about a little bit in the conversation, but Even when we originally went into this, I was like, oh, yeah, like, I guess a lot of people do use diesel generators. And then, like, the more and more we talked about it, the more I was like, oh, my God, there are so many things that use these. I have straight up never thought about it before. And thinking of especially you mentioned it, the ice cream trucks. These are like trucks pulling up at like the playground. Little kids are standing there in line, like next to these emissions. And like the fact that they're not regulated at all is crazy. The fact that they're not regulated is like, I am not surprised that the U.S. is not regulating this. We need to get on an EU level of regulating this stuff because the ice cream man, the ice cream man is, what is it? Absorbing poison, poison. I don't know. I'm so angry. I'm scared. I don't know. It's it's just like, so just frightening to hear. Oh, I know. It's crazy, too, because he, talking with him a little bit about competition, too, it's like, yeah, there are a couple other players in the space, but without the regulations and stuff, just like not that many people are talking about this, which is crazy, like companies and sort of the people using the generators alike, which is just wild to me. (laughs) Now I'm trying to think, didn't he mention something about where the money is? Like, is it that companies make more money or they know it's cheaper to get these things, right? The diesel generators, it's cheaper to get them. Right. So I imagine there's a big diesel energy, and that's the reason we haven't heard much about it. That's the reason why people are not moving over. There's big diesel energy that's preventing things from happening. That's my wild moonshot take. Because <laughs> it definitely, it's interesting to think about like the music festival piece of this, because after we talked to him last week, literally like within 24 hours, 48 hours, a friend of mine writes a newsletter on Substack called Zogblog. And he does some investing in the climate space. And he wrote his whole newsletter this week about how people like Bono and Coldplay are like really pushing to make their concerts more sustainable. And what they're doing with that of like limiting inventory on shirts and like not playing in places where they can't do a concert that's more carbon neutral. And I just thought it was so interesting right after talking with James about this issue, because it's like, well, if Bono's been doing this for years and Coldplay has been doing it for at least a couple of years themselves, there hasn't been a ton of movement there. It is interesting to think of like how fast this kind of adoption will be if you even have these like well-known names in certain industries pushing for this and like still seeing slow, not like steady change. Yeah, because I remember Billie Eilish made headlines for this a while ago. 
and that she has she's made it a priority to kind of lower the environmental footprint of all of her touring and making it more environmentally friendly. And remember at the time I was thinking, I was like, what does she mean by that? But then now obviously talking to him, I'm like, oh, that's what she means. I'm like, how much diesel do you think it takes to put on a Taylor Swift concert? Oh my God, I probably like would cry if I saw the answer. Like, that's insane. So this is, yeah, this is definitely needed innovation. But what else about the conversation surprised you? I think the crowdfunding piece of this was really interesting because while crowdfunding has such an interesting place in like the startup venture ecosystem, some people still think it's like, oh, only fraudulent companies use it or oh, only companies that can't raise VC funding, whereas other VCs, of course, are happy to follow in after someone has crowdfunding, XYZ. But this was such a different take on crowdfunding or a different angle that I hadn't heard yet, where he talked about the fact that despite raising in this method, they still found advisors and they still found investors in the syndicate that were willing to make introductions. Had a lot of that value add that VCs always say is like the reason you raise from VCs as opposed to doing crowdfunding. Like, oh, you need you do crowdfunding for money. You raise from VCs for expertise. And he kind of went against that, which I thought was really interesting because I hadn't heard that narrative before. Yeah, I was also shocked to see that he decided to primarily go with crowdfunding because I thought that this would be like an investor darling. Like I could see it for sure. just raising like just millions of dollars. And then Tim writes about it for TechCrunch. Like I could totally see that happening. And so when he kind of shunned all of that, I was like, I was just also thinking like maybe I guess he has more control, I guess, also over the business in terms of how much he wants it to grow. Because I, I imagine when you also have a VC, you have to give away equity and some control too. I mean, at least I was thinking about myself, like as a founder, I was like, why would I crowdfund? And I was like, oh, yeah, to have a little bit more control over the company and steer it where I want to go. Because it seems like he's finding the right mentorship or the mentorship that he wants, at least. Definitely. No, it definitely proves that you don't have to do the VC route if you are in search of that mentorship or those introductions and network, because it seems like, which I've known a little bit because the big firms all scout on crowdfunding sites, even though they don't talk about it very much. But this was like a good example of like, you don't even need to like hope one of those people finds you on crowdfunding. Like you really can just go and raise from unaccredited investors and still like get these great outcomes from it, which is that gives me hope in a tough fundraising market. I don't know. Yeah, this is definitely a, this is a hopeful story. <laughs> There's a lot of hope. And so, but I still cannot get over the ice cream man <laughs> and him <laughs> being trapped in that truck. Oh my God. With diesel fuel. Um, I mean, this is one of those companies where you're like, you think about the future and how important stuff like this is needed, but like also really fast and how more innovation like this. Because I'm, I'm now I'm like, there's probably so many little climate bubbles that we don't even know of that needs to be addressed ASAP. And it's like, we're not even thinking about it. No, we're just like burying carbon credits in the ground or whatever that ginormous clean tech industry is that I still don't understand the full <laughs> benefits of. But yeah, no, you're totally right. Just thinking of how much I was like, oh, that's a cool problem. And then start talking about it. And I'm like, oh my God, that's a ginormous problem. I'm sure there are many other things that would fall under that, that I don't know, companies like Jewel Case can come in and kind of own that market which is like a much smarter place to build. Yeah, and it's also good to see that like New York and Connecticut are working to ban diesel generators, especially banning them in the ice cream trucks because it's exposing the kids. Oh, they had the same thought. <laughs> it's good to see that government is stepping in. But were you surprised to hear that they weren't really trying to expand into the EU? I was a little bit surprised by that just because the EU obviously with 
everything related to climate and seemingly everything else is more progressive than the U.S. and sort of further along in making some of those positive changes. But I mean, I don't know. Because they're further along, maybe they don't have this problem or maybe there's competitors over there that have been around longer. Like, I don't know what you thought about that. No, because you know what's going to happen is the next time I'm over there, I'm going to be walking in the streets of Paris and then I'm going to see a food truck and then I'm going to go up and ask in French, do you use a diesel generator or is this like, you know, carbon neutral or something like I'm just going to go around Europe and ask food trucks, what are they using? And if they're not using it, then a new startup idea just dropped or new market expansion just dropped. Or you call the EU, Ursula, hello, and say, diesel generators, you gotta, you gotta, the ice cream trucks in Europe. Think about the kids, at least. Oh my God. No, please do this and report back. I'm gonna do it. I'm watch and see. I'm definitely gonna do this. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter Dominic Midori Davis. Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Listener.